Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this New Books Network podcast. My name is Leo Naskow, and today I'm joined by the long-serving Labour minister, Andrew Adonis. Andrew is best known as a minister in the cabinet of Tony Blair, one of Britain's longest-serving prime ministers. As head of Blair's policy unit, he designed the introduction of university tuition fees, later becoming a minister in the Department for Education. He subsequently served as Secretary of State for Transport, under Blair's successor, Gordon Brown, where he pioneered the plan for HS2, Britain's largest high-speed rail project. More recently, he has served as director of the Institute for Government, the widely respected UK think tank, and Progress, an internal Labour Party organisation, and has been a vocal advocate against Brexit, Britain's departure from the EU, as chair of the European Movement UK. Today, we're discussing his most recent book, It's All About the Leader, Stupid, Paraphrasing Bill Clinton's notorious bon mot, it's all about the economy, that the only thing that matters in an election is what's happening happening in economic affairs. Andrew argues that when it comes to national two-horse elections, the best leader wins. That's it. Nothing else matters. Setting out his stance up front, the book then treats us to Andrew's insights on leaders who dominate the political history of the UK and the United States and beyond of the 20th and 21st centuries. Thank you very much for joining me this morning, Andrew. I wanted to start off by asking you what inspired you to bring all of your ideas together in the book and what you've learned about political leadership along the way. Oh, it's great to be with you, Leo. And it's great to be talking about uh, this big theme of leadership, which is one of the most important thing in human societies, how they're organised and how they're taken forward and how nations develop political leaders who, who shape them to an extraordinary degree. It's a, a subject I've been writing about for 30 years. When I was um, uh, a young postgrad, uh, my, uh, my PhD thesis was on aristocratic leadership because Britain, uh, a country which was in transition from aristocracy to democracy, had a series of very great aristocratic leaders. And one of them, Lord Salisbury, who dominated the politics of the late 19th century, from the great House of Cecil, which had produced Lord Burley, who was Elizabeth I's chief minister three centuries earlier. I, I, I reached the conclusion that you couldn't understand the whole way that Britain moves towards democracy from aristocracy without understanding these two extraordinary Victorian figures of Lord Salisbury, the great aristocrat, and William Ewart Gladstone, the great liberal, who sort of dragged um, Parliament kicking and screaming from aristocracy towards democracy. And I became very firmly of the view that though there were lots of social and economic things happening, which are hugely important. There's the Industrial Revolution taking place at this time. There's the move towards imperialism. Nonetheless, you can't understand how Britain moved forward in this period and indeed how it managed to gain the benefits of industrialization and imperialism with a really dynamic home economy and a very open political system without understanding its leaders. And that led to a great interest in leaders, which I've written about uh, on and off, book reviews, long articles, books, 
most recently a book on Ernie Bevin, who's one of Britain's greatest leaders of the 20th century, the great foreign secretary after 1945, who saw off Stalin from Western Europe, founded NATO, effectively founded the Federal Republic of of Germany and was Britain's greatest trade union leader who founded the Transport and General Workers Union and was at Churchill's right hand during the war as Minister of Labour. And that biography came out a year ago with the deliberately controversial subtitle Labour's Churchill, making clear that it was this extraordinary leadership quality he had, which is what uh, proved to be so important to his success and, and, and wider British success in the 1940s. And this collection of essays brings um, all of those pieces together with an introduction, which, as you say, charts the outcome of elections in two horse democracies, of which the two most famous are Britain and America, charts it very closely to the popularity and ratings of the leader. And it's my view, which is, isn't invariably true, there are always exceptions, but it's generally true, that all you need to know about an election is who the two leaders are. Watch them for a few minutes on telly, look at uh, how they operate and their accomplishments, and you can pretty well tell without even, even needing to put a party label on or look at their manifestos who's going to win. You just needed in 2019 to spend two or three minutes looking at Boris Johnson on telly and then Jeremy Corbyn on telly and you could work out pretty quickly who was going to win out of those two you just needed to look at Tony Blair versus John Major you didn't need to know much else you just needed to watch them speak and be in action for two or three minutes and you would have told that uh, Tony Blair was going to win and even more so William Hague four years later so that's that's the thesis um, it's uh, an obvious slight oversimplification. Um, it, it, there are big complications like what happens when you're in three or four party systems, like the recent German election where Olaf Scholz came from third place to win. So I don't claim it's a, it's a general theory, but I do think it's quite an important view of how politics and societies work, which is that leadership matters above all. The relationship between leaders followers and the wider society is a really important one and once you understand the quality of the leader you also understand a great deal about the society that they lead. And I think what makes this particularly interesting is of course you're no one is at a loss to find anyone that doesn't attribute anything to leadership but the idea is it matters above all I can imagine I don't know policy researchers and the like screaming that policy matters, political parties matter, ideas, things like that. And do you, what, I suppose, what role do you attribute to those aspects of, of the process? Well, all of those are very important, but they all operate within the prism of the leader. It's political parties, of course, that produce leaders, though often, actually, uh, leaders choose parties. So it's, it's uh, uh, to a, an extent that isn't properly realised. Political parties are franchise operations, which leaders take over for periods of time with the name. That's most obviously true in the United States. And I discussed this in the introduction of the book, where essentially what happens in the United States is that every four or eight years, each of the two major parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, franchises party to a leader. Literally, they choose their presidential candidates. And that person then decides the policy, the platform. Uh, often, they're not even a member of the party before. Trump wasn't even a Republican before he, he chose the Republicans as a vehicle to get into politics. Some of the greatest presidents have essentially chosen their party and then taken them over as franchises. Uh, Eisenhower, 
uh, was um, solicited by both the Democrats and the Republicans in 1951-52. He chose the Republicans. And then for eight years, because he got re-elected, the Republicans became an Eisenhower franchise. And actually, when you think about British political parties, they're much more franchise operations than people realise. People think that there's a Conservative Party and a Labour Party, and there's a constant body of ideas. And of course, there are some ideas. The Labour Party tends to be more on the left, more collectivist. The Conservative Party tends to be more on the right, more individualist. But if you wanted to compare Margaret Thatcher David Cameron, Theresa May and Boris Johnson. I mean, they almost qualify as separate parties in each case. Could you imagine Margaret Thatcher putting up everyone's taxes as Boris Johnson has done uh, with the national in, in insurance increase and going on about levelling up to the north? I mean, it would have been an almost impossibility. As for the Labour Party, the Labour Party of Tony Blair, who... Uh, I served as uh, an advisor and a minister, was a completely different beast from the Labour Party of Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, they had almost nothing in common, hardly any policies, uh, massive changes of membership between the two leaders, because leaders tend to recruit members in their own image. And if Jeremy Corbyn had become prime minister in 2017 or 2019, though, as I argue in my book, that was never going to happen because he was such a bad leader, Britain would essentially have had a Marxist government. He was, he, he was in favour of mass public ownership. Uh, he would have uh, been very friendly with President Putin. They would have uh, probably would effectively have taken us out of NATO and, and, and. Well, all of those were the antithesis of Tony Blair. So to an extent, I don't think people often realise because they think that parties with names are constant. Actually, mm -hmm. they're to a very substantial extent franchised to leaders. And uh, those leaders, of course, need the party machine they have to project policies, they have to project competence, they have to put teams together, uh, they need activists, all those things are true. But it's the leader that's the linchpin, it's not the other way around. Okay, and I suppose, to, to extend this further, the idea that I want to bring in is that politicians are choosing where they want to direct their party, but to an extent that's subject to, to what people are thinking, the spirit of the time, which is the other factor that you that you that you include it in in this table that you have in the, in the book, sort of charting these, comparing these different leaders. How important is that side of things? Because I can imagine that being quite significant for a leader. It might even depend on sort of might affect who is able to to dominate. Well, uh, it's very important. Leaders who are successful encapsulate and to some extent shape the zeitgeist, what the Germans call the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times. Mm -hmm. Now, um, this is a slight um, uh, uh, moot point because um, sometimes leaders who are really very good at encapsulating the spirit of the times aren't actually brilliant leaders and they become almost handmaidens of social movements. Um, it's, it's, it's exceptional, but it does happen. The most, the most striking case in British history, I think, is Clement Attlee, who was a kind of mouse-like figure. I mean, you know, because one of the most extraordinary elections to explain is 1945, where the two mm -hmm. candidates were Winston Churchill, 
and Clement Attlee. And it, I, I'm afraid arguing against myself, because I'm not claiming I have a general theory. If you watched two minutes of Churchill and two minutes of Attlee, I think you would almost certainly say that Churchill was the leader and he would have won the election. So how do you explain 1945 when there's a Labour landslide? And you can only explain it by the fact that after five years of total war, with a deeply unequal society coming out of mass unemployment in the 1930s, uh, Clement Attlee, who had uh, a, a, a kind of reverse charisma, he had an enormous quantity of trust that he encapsulated and competence that he encapsulated because he'd been Deputy Prime Minister to Churchill, but was not a charismatic figure, but absolutely was riding the wave of this desire for full employment, a welfare state, no more war, and uh, building a, a really... Um, a successful society after the war. People thought that Attlee and and At, how Attlee encapsulated a kind of moderate form of socialism, what in England we call social democracy, that that's what they wanted. And not Churchill, who though he had the charismatic qualities of leadership, uh, people thought that Churchill didn't understand uh, the unemployed, the poor. He represented very much uh, the conservatives of the 1930s, you know, the Jap, you know, who had been uh, uh, responsible for mass unemployment. And they also feared that Churchill might take Britain into another war. And the last thing people wanted in 1945 was another war. So leadership isn't completely straightforward. It's not simply a matter of the most charismatic figure wins. There is also this indeterminate quality of representing the zeitgeist. And in extreme cases, um, I think probably Chancellor Merkel in Germany is one of those two. Very conventionally uh, conventionally uncharismatic leaders can perform brilliantly because they are, are so highly attuned to the zeitgeist of the, uh, uh, of the time that they lead. I think what's a really interesting theme, and it comes up sort of throughout the book, I suppose, is that balance between as you say, capturing the zeitgeist of the time and joining the, this majority of political opinion, but also shaping it. And I suppose what probably makes a good leader is being able to get an effective balance of that. I think to pick two examples from the book, Gladstone captures that in a sense in evolving from a relatively stern Tory in the 1830s to being essentially the vanguard of liberalism in the, in the 1880s. And similarly, Blair, who you obviously work with a lot more closely, um, his rise in the 1980s is sort of associated with conforming to, to Michael Foote's, um, or at least the Labour of the 1980s, rather than joining the SDP. And then his subsequent rise to, to shape the, the Labour Party under the new Labour brand. It's that balance between shaping the majority and uh, aligning yourself with it that I think is a really interesting insight from the book. That's completely true. All great leaders to some extent, represent the zeitgeist. Uh, Gladstone, for example, rides the wave of the great commercial and industrial and trade revolution of the 19th century. He's seen as very much the the pro-capitalist candidates all the way through. That's part of the reason how he evolves from being the stern, unbending Tory to a, a liberal. He's a great chancellor of the Exchequer who stands for the great extension of Britain's trade and free trade. And part of free trade was a much more open political system too. So free trade in politics as well as free trade in the economy. And he shapes that new regime as well as reflecting it. It's completely true. Churchill very famously says when he um, reopens the House of Commons 
on the model of the old House of Commons, which had been bombed by Hitler in 1914. It's rebuilt exactly as it was before, you know, with the benches facing each other and the dispatch boxes and all of that. Because there'd been a big debate about whether there should be a new House of Commons, which is semicircular and much more continental, which he was strongly against because he said that the whole interplay of British democracy is between a government and an opposition and having them uh, sitting opposite each other and going for each other all the time constantly gave the public a choice. And he famously said when he uh, reopened the Chamber of the House of Commons, we mould our institutions and they mould us. And that is completely true, that it's this interplay between leaders, institutions, societies that is what shapes the future. And uh, great leaders and you know, like Churchill, like Thatcher, like Blair, like Lincoln, um, uh, they, they shape their societies as much as reflect them. And their societies are usually a, a pretty different place when they've left than they were before. In the case of Lincoln, I mean, unrecognisably different. You know, Lincoln, who's maybe the most transformational of all the leaders I write about in my book, he, re he comes to the fore of a country which is just about to be severed in half. One half of it's about to become a slave state, you know, slave owning state, completely mm -hmm. separate state. And the other half, a kind of British industrial um, quasi democracy, the North. And what does he do? He completely transforms that. He starts a war. It's a war of choice. He actually attacks Fort Sumner, which, Sumter, which had already been taken by the Confederates, takes it back, fights this five year war. Uh, creates the United States that we know of today with a really strong central government and, of course, abolishes slavery and creates a, a whole, what becomes a continental state, which is essentially based on the principle of individual liberty, you know, not, sometimes honoured in the breach, but nonetheless a founding principle of that society, whereas half of it before had been founded as much on the principle of slavery as the principle of lib liberty. So it's completely right. It's how society, societies produce leaders and then how the leaders in turn shape societies. It's one of the most interesting things to study in human affairs. And uh, that's why I think I've got a lot more to say about it in the years to come. <laughs> I think what's really interesting about the Lincoln example is obviously the Civil War started and the Casas Belli, the case for war, was just to save the Union. This was something that lots of people could could support and and, and get behind. And, that, and yet over the years, it evolved into the maximum of ending slavery. And it's that transition um, through which leaders leverage the majority that they've joined, use it to seize the initiative, and, and then use it to drive change. And I think another thing that comes up in the book is that idea of seizing the initiative. I I actually really laughed when I read the example of Mitterrand uh, faking an assassination of himself just so he can get himself in the headlines. And because de Gaulle kept having assassination attempts, yes, went up and his popularity surged off because he kept surviving assassination. Because I mean, you know, it's almost comic de Gaulle. You know, every car he goes in seems to have three bullets and it, it kills one of his security guards, but not him, which is the reason why Mitterrand then decides to fake his own assassination to show that uh, he's a wanted man too. You're completely right, yeah. And similarly with, with Bevan organising a general strike that he deplored, I think that seizing the initiative is a really interesting tactic of leadership that I know, often we might look upon as a little bit arrogant, but I think it plays a really important role even even today. Sure, it does, for good and bad. And, and we talked about Mitterrand. Uh, we'll look at Boris Johnson. 
Boris Johnson seized Brexit in order to become the leader. He didn't believe in Brexit before. You know, there were the famous two articles in the Daily Telegraph. I know him quite well. He was, when he was mayor of London, he was pro-EU. I mean, he'd been a sort of slight EU bashing journalist in the Telegraph. He didn't actually want us to leave, but but he could see his path to power to get rid of Cameron as leader of the Conservative Party, and then to. Um, uh, to diss the Labour Party was was mobilising Brexit as a new form of English nationalism and being an Etonian from a, a, a sort of deep, deeply English nationalist uh, family, he did understand how to mobilise those forces. His problem, which is um, uh, uh, the subject I discuss in my the last chapter of my book, which is called The Prime Etonian on Boris Johnson, is that having seized power, which he did through the prism of Brexit, he then didn't know what to do with it. And nothing could sum that up better than the fact that we're now in sort of month two of Partygate. I mean, there's almost no plan for the country. There was simply a plan for celebrity Boris Johnson to seize the leadership of the country. And he did that brilliantly. And now to an almost extraordinary degree, he has this power and doesn't know what to do with it. And instead, what he's seeking to do is just to enjoy himself. And even in the lockdown, uh, the, the, <laughs> the temptation to have to party away was too great. So uh, the interplay between how leaders come to power and what their vision is, um, is also very important. And while the, the rather depressing thing is that quite a high proportion of leaders, having got power, don't really have much of an idea what to do with it. Uh, and I think Boris Johnson is almost the exemplar of that kind of, of, of um, charismatic leader for whom um, uh, personal gratification and expression is the main reason for wanting to lead. It's not a plan for changing or saving the country. When you look at Johnson and Starmer, and similarly, I know a lot of people listening will be from the US. How do you assess the leaders that are at the, the very forefront today? Well, in um, a tour de force at Prime Minister's Questions last week, showing what, what, what a successful charismatic figure he is, um, Johnson trounced Starmer. Uh, with great rhetorical tricks, refused. Starmer was trying to do a legal thing on did he know or didn't he know which party was taking place when and so on, and 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 Boris rounded on him for being obsessed by this legal trivia while he was trying to stop a war between Russia and uh, and the Ukraine, getting Britain out of um, COVID nineteen, masterminding a boom and so on, and ended with this great line: "That's the reason why I'm a leader and he's a lawyer." Um, so in the contest, contest between those two, at the moment, Boris is on top, but he's a deeply flawed figure. And part of the flaw is what we've just been discussing is that he doesn't really have a plan for the country. So he's quite vulnerable. And though I think on a straight head to head between Boris Johnson and, and Keir Starmer, probably Boris wins. That does depend upon Boris not self-immolating. And at mm. the moment, he might be undergoing that process. Yes, he might be. When I saw that... I'm a leader, he's a lawyer, quote, I thought Keir Starmer really should have responded with something along the lines of, well, if he'd had a lawyer, he probably wouldn't have avoided breaking the law. <laughs> yes, repartee is a good thing, but I'm afraid in between those two, it's Johnson that's got it, not Starmer. Yes, which is, is Starmer's biggest shortcoming, I suppose. One, one example that I also really took to reading the book was about uh, LBJ and Vietnam and how... He was really faced with two two paths. He could 
taking over from Kennedy could quite easily have become a stopgap president. But really seizing the initiative over relatively trivial issues, just so he could seize the cockpit, seize the initiative. I think it's a really interesting, sort of a master, you call it a masterclass, and I, I agree, although I did only read the way that you framed it, so perhaps I was bound to agree. Um, but I think that's a really insightful example of, of seizing the leadership. That's completely true. At the time, uh, people thought LBJ would be a stopgap. They didn't. They didn't think he had the uh, uh, vision or political skills uh, to hold the presidency. And of course, the Kennedyites loathed him. And uh, Bobby Kennedy thought that he should inherit the mantle from his brother, and was all out to stop um, to stop LBJ. But you're right. LBJ seizes the initiative with extraordinary flair and does two big things. He goes big on civil rights and what becomes his great society programme, able to mobilise particularly the black community, uh, but also uh, Democrats on a wave of massive national sympathy after the assassination of Kennedy. So he he radicalises Kennedy's domestic programme, but but does it in Kennedy's name, which is a very, very uh, shrewd move. But at the same time, he makes a move to the right, because that's a move to the left, of course. He makes mm-hmm. a bold move to the right on national security and goes in big time in Vietnam in a way that I am convinced, having looked at the record, uh, JFK wouldn't have done. And it's that combination of a big, bold seizing of the initiative on the domestic agenda and mobilising and building up a new left, particularly getting a black vote out, which hadn't really voted in large numbers before, which is the crucial importance of the Civil Rights Act and all of those uh, reforms which empower em- empower the lower uh, paid and the black community, at the same time as becoming the big national security president who's taking on the commies and is not going to uh, have America uh, uh, pushed around by the um, by the Soviet Union and its proxies, which is the argument for going into Vietnam. It's an extraordinary exercise in leadership. And it wins, um, Kennedy, it wins uh, LBJ a landslide in 1964 against uh, a very weak Republican candidate, Barry Goldwater. But because of the catastrophe in in Vietnam becomes so great, ultimately it destroys LBJ. And in 1968, where he's effectively forced out of the race, it's because having gone so hard right on foreign policy with the Vietnam War, and of course the draft and large numbers of middle-class uh, white Americans being killed and coming back in body in body bags, he simply can't keep control of the Democratic Party, and and he's forced out. So it's it's a it's a great story of leadership, but it's also a very poignant story, mm. and it's one which leads people still today to bitterly debate the legacy because figures on the left are passionately pro LBJ in terms of the Great Society, the Civil Rights Act, the creation of. Uh, the elements of a welfare state in um, in the United States, Medicare and Medicaid, not not on Western European standards, but still nonetheless uh, much better than anything that had gone before in the United States. But of course, LBJ is also also uh, the president of Vietnam and the Vietnam catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that those great crowds outside the White House, LBJ, LBJ, how many kids have you killed today? I mean, really, really poignant. And he'll forever be a conflicted leader. Mm, and I think that idea of the boldness and the seizing initiative overplaying itself is is a really important thing to recognise and indeed a warning for those seeking to seize the initiative 
And it also relates to what we were talking about moments ago about balancing, capturing the majority and aligning yourself with it. But a broader question is in my mind about sort of we're comparing leaders going back hundreds of years from Gladstone to to Bevan to LBJ to, to Biden and to Starmer. To what extent are the leadership lessons consistent over time? Is it fair? Is it worthwhile, I suppose, us comparing completely different time periods? I believe it is because human beings don't change fundamentally. Obviously, contexts change, institutions change. Countries are very different. But of course, countries are very different in contemporary terms as well. Comparing um, uh, Biden, Joe Biden, one of the subjects of um, my uh, uh, book, um, who's, an, who's a very remarkable leader, the, both the oldest leader that the United States has produced, but somebody who became a senator at the age of 30 and has had a longer political career at the top than almost anybody in the history of American politics and wanted to be president from the moment he got elected as the junior sen- senator from Delaware back in, in 1972. Comparing him with President Xi and President Putin is a highly problematic business because one has come through democratic institutions and a whole democratic culture, and both of the others have come through totalitarian uh, systems which don't prize charisma and the conventional Western leadership skills which are needed to win elections in anything like the same way. But they are both, all three of them, are foremost leaders in the world today. And indeed, to add another one who's, as it were, um, uh, equally different from all of them, uh, the most remarkable leader I wrote about in, in the book uh, it's the leader, Stupid, who I hadn't known much about before. It was Narendra Modi, the Prime mm-hmm. Minister of India, who's who's uh, a great Indian nationalist and, and the first really uh, successful leader to have come out of the BJP. That's the Indian nationalist, Hindu nationalist party, as opposed to the Gandhis and, and their uh, more secular um, uh, tradition, which went back to independence in the 1940s. Now, Narendra Modi is the most successful electoral politician in the history of the world. He is the only person I'm aware of who has won more than a billion votes. I mean, in reasonably free elections, India's got a reasonably free political system. I mean, it's not completely free, but it's as arguably as free as the United States, actually. He's won two general elections by landslides in India and two elections to be first minister of Gujarat. And you, when you total those votes, they're well over a billion. His political party, the BJP, has four times as many members as the Chinese Communist Party. And I studied um, Modi because I was so intrigued by this and uh, as a long essay on him and what it is that makes him such a successful leader. And he has an extraordinary form of charisma, which is a combination of conventional charismatic political skills and the quality of a Hindu priest. He essentially preaches mm-hmm. like a Hindu priest, wears Hindu priestly uh, robes and garb, is constantly worshipping at Hindu temples and seizing these deities as kind of political mascots. Uh, he's an extraordinary uh, he figure. He leverage, leverages an understanding of every single rung of Indian society, really. Yes, completely right. Uh, but he's also quite a dangerous figure, too, because he also others the Muslim community in India. And the Muslim community, of course, there were more Muslims in India than there are, for example, in Pakistan. It's a huge Muslim community, too. So uh, the qualities that make up leaders and how they reflect societies are very different even in our own age because the societies are so radically different. You know, comparing American society, Indian society, 
and Chinese and Russian societies. You're looking at four very different societies. And the leaders they produce are, of course, radically different as well. Is it meaningful to compare them? Yes, to the extent that they're all human beings exercising the attributes of leadership. But there are, of course, fundamental institution, institutional and social differences, which do, of course, partly explain why it is that Russia produces a kind of KGB apparatchik as its president. Um, uh, India produces a kind of Hindu priest on steroids as its leader. And the United States produces one of the the most successful glad handers in the history of electoral politics. So, you know, the leaders do to some extent reflect their societies as well as shaping them. And I suppose given that, well, given that, it's potentially very valuable to compare leaders in the same country over time rather than leaders in the same time over different countries. Um, And I think... There are some themes that we've talked about that appear to be very important. They appear to be very common to to most leaders or all of them. And there are others that I wanted to talk about that appear to be less significant and they appear in some leaders a lot more than they do in others. There's a blend of the different uh, traits and and abilities to to galvanise people, to sort of staying in touch with all rungs of society is something that some leaders have inherently in terms of their their background, LBJ and Modi demonstrate that quite a lot. And it's something that Boris Johnson, for example, doesn't really have, but sort of appears to have. And it's the different interactions of traits that I think is 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 relevant. And I, I wondered how you saw it vary. Does it is something that varies across countries and leaders that come across in particular that rise up in particular countries have particular blends of traits, or is it just is it more of a milieu? I suppose. Well, there's clearly a massive difference between societies that are basically democratic and societies that are basically authoritarian. Societies that are basically democratic, uh, leaders do need to have those charismatic skills which are capable of winning elections. And as I say, they can sometimes be the charisma of great competence, like a Clem Attlee, like a Chancellor Merkel, but more often they're uh, the charisma of, um, of, of the kind of touchy-feely uh, uh, persuasion, uh, charis- people who are good on the box and all that type skills. In authoritarian societies, it's people who are capable of seizing control of, of authoritarian machines. And often those are people who come up through uh, party or bureaucratic or military structures who take over. And they may be dead boring and the kind of person who actually find it very hard to win an election in a democracy. I can't think that President Xi, who looks like a kind of uh, machine, uh, I think he'd probably find it quite hard to win a contested democratic election, but he clearly was an absolute master of all of the Central Committee apparatus of the Chinese Communist Party. Well, similarly, there are some in that respect. I think when you think of Merkel, I suppose, is one example of someone that's relatively mild-mannered and similarly Olaf Scholz who who we talked about briefly there are some ways for these sorts of people that aren't charismatic to still succeed and in Merkel's case succeed for a very long time. Yes I think it's quite interesting that I think it's something to do with the nature of the Federal Republic of Germany though. The Federal Republic of Germany has had quite a number of leaders who have been very competent Uh, very good at building coalitions and representing the zeitgeist, but not conventionally charismatic. The founder of the Federal Republic of Germany, Konrad Adenauer, was absolutely in that Mm -hmm. mode. So was Helmut Kohl. So was um, 
uh, as you say, Chancellor Merkel, and so is Chancellor Scholz. I think it has something to do with the fact that with the experience of the Third Reich and Hitler, the anti-leader has a, a special form of charisma in Germany that doesn't operate in most other societies. Germans are very, very wary of leaders who are tub thumpers and who make great speeches. I mean, you know, it, it conjures up visions of the Nuremberg rally and all of that. So I think there is something to do with modern German culture that, that fosters leaders who have uh, the attributes of very great competence, a real ability to represent the zeitgeist, but are essentially coalition and consent, consensus builders and not... Um, strident and successful mobilizers of, uh, of, of of mass political opinion. And that's been quite a trait. It's not a, a, a universal trait. Willy Brandt and, um, and, and Gerhard Schroeder were much more conventionally charismatic. But even in their cases, they underplayed the, uh, the charisma. They, they, they didn't do massive, big, tough-thumping speeches for the most part. Uh, they downplayed it rather than uh, overplayed it. So I think, uh, again, looking at the interplay between a society, the moment, and the leader, Germany is a very, very interesting modern case of a society which prizes anti-charisma as much as charisma. And I think that complements the point that you were making earlier, that it's much more productive to compare within countries over time than in flipping those two different dimensions. Another thing that came across when I was reading the book was a lot more subtle, and it was slightly distinct from leadership, but nonetheless related, sort of a regret, particularly to the UK, a regret over how UK politicians have treated European institutions. It was something that I wanted to pick up on, going back to how uh, Callaghan and Jenkins debated over the over the ERM, how Blair, Brown and the Euro, Cameron Farage, who we have hardly discussed, and Brexit, a consistent tendency of British politicians, particularly those right at the top, to refrain from really making the case for Europe. That's something that British leadership has sort of developed a collective amnesia over. And it's sort of a theme that A comes up in in the book sort of more subtly. And it's obviously a lot to do with what you're working on now as well. I wondered how how this all tied together in your in your mind? Well, two of the chapters of the book are on uh, respectively Nigel Farage, who is more than anyone responsible for us leaving the European Union, and Roy Jenkins, uh, who is my great hero, uh, who is more who was more than anyone responsible for, for us going in in the first place. And if you're looking at the 50 years of Britain's membership of the European Union, in a spiritual and leadership sense, it was essentially a battle between people in the in the uh, mode of Roy Jenkins and people in the mode of Nigel Farage. And unfortunately, the Farageists came out on top at the end uh, because of this extraordinary alliance in the 2010s between Cameron Farage and Boris Johnson. Farage turning uh, UKIP into Britain's first successful populist party in modern times, which scarified Cameron into calling a referendum which Johnson then mobilised to replace Cameron to become leader of the Conservative Party and take over the country in league with Farage, but without actually formally 
uh, bringing him into the Conservative Party because he knew that that would break the Conservative coalition of the centre and the right. So you're absolutely correct that uh, at the end, the anti-European forces came out on top. But I don't think it was preordained that they would. The big problem is that after Tony Blair retires in 2007, there isn't a strong leader of the pro-European forces in the country. Now, those pro-European forces contain most of the business community, uh, around half or more of the voters. You know, it, came, it was very narrow, that 2016 referendum. If there'd been a second referendum, which is what I was campaigning for, after 2017, I think we might have won it. But there wasn't the leader who could actually lead the pro-European forces in the way that Roy Jenkins and Ted Heath had done in the 1970s. Instead, we had Jeremy Corbyn, who was the anti-conservative leader. And Jeremy Corbyn didn't even believe in the European Union. I mean, because his party was overwhelmingly pro-European, he couldn't diss Europe. But he absolutely wasn't the strong, resolute Jenkinsite leader who was going to make the case for Europe. Uh, Corbyn had spent the previous 30 years saying that the European Union was a capitalist conspiracy. So he was hardly going to be the guy doing that. Uh, The point on leadership that comes through, though, is I think it was very contingent. The reason why we ended up by very narrow margins Brexiting in the 2010s was this extraordinary alliance of Cameron, Farage, Johnson, three people who deeply distrusted each other. In, in, in a kind of triangular way, but ended in a kind of Faustian pact type form of politics, taking us from what I regarded as secure membership of the European Union at the end of the Blair government to what seemed at the time the absolute impossibility of Brexit, which had happened uh, uh, within a decade. I suppose the counterpoint to that is, although the the hammer blow of Brexit was was swung in 2016. It's also the build up of I don't know 40, 50 years of of reticence to make the case for for EU membership. And I suppose when you get to that 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 lengthy period, it's leader after leader making the same calculation. Do you not suppose that it points to something bigger, perhaps in in the the I don't know the, the electoral calculations, the political majority that leaders were trying to align themselves with or potentially just some underlying psyche? Well, it clearly does. Uh, English nationalism is strong. Uh, England has always had a semi-detached relationship with its own continent, partly because it is an island. Um, And there's always, going back centuries, uh, right back to Elizabeth I and indeed all the battles over British Britain and France and dynasties which were part British and part French and sometimes, you know, uh, had territories in both countries, this this uh, half-in, half-out relationship between Britain and Europe is is part of, of, of what it means uh, to be English. Um, so the fact that there is a strong nationalist community which defines itself against integration with the continent and there's a strong integrationist community that wants engagement, that goes back a very long way and in its modern form to the debates over joining Uh, the European Union, which go back to the foundation of the European coal and steel community in 1950. And indeed, the chapter, um, Ernest Bevin in my book, It's Really Stupid, refers to that. However, what was not preordained was that one or other side would come out on top. It could have been either. And indeed, it was both in a sense, because Britain does go into the European Union in the 1970s because the pro-Europeans come out on top. We stay in for 50 years and then 
the anti-Europeans come out on top. And I think the deciding factor in both cases is the quality of leadership. The fact that by the 1960s, the leaders of all of the major parties, Harold Macmillan and Harold Wilson, Harold Wilson and Ted Heath a decade later, that they are all in favour of British membership of the European Union is the reason why we go in. By the 2010s, by a process of salami slicing, a large part of the Conservative leadership has moved anti-European. You have the poison of UKIP in the mix with the most successful populist leader Britain has produced in modern times, and then working in league with Boris Johnson. So in explaining, given these fairly equal pro and anti-European forces in society at large, why it is that the pro-European forces won out for half a century, and then we went through the Brexit experience in the 2010s, I think leadership is absolutely vital to that. And we all, as you say, do come back to, to leadership and the potential of leaders to, to direct the, the fortunes of the people that they represent. But I think that's I think that's a good time to, to draw to a close. Thank you very much for talking to me today, Andrew. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. If you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can head over to leonascal.co.uk and you'll find a section on the homepage about Andrew's book and what we can learn from it. And you'll be able to offer your thoughts as well as well. I'd also love to hear your feedback. So let me know what you thought about the podcast anonymously, or you can leave your name at bit.ly forward slash feedback dash Leo with a capital F and a capital O, but both links will be in the description below. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and are able to bring Andrew's book up soon in discussion with a friend or, or a colleague. But for now, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.